Welcome back to Round Guy, the podcast. As uh, we, as Round Guy remembers Tommy Bowl and I was greatest uh, rock guitarist ever, uh, really. Uh, and people don't know enough about him. We're at part five. We're with uh, Michael Drum, uh, Tommy Bowen's friend and uh, documentarian. Uh, I'll play a little music here. A little uh, post-toasty. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, welcome back to the program, Michael. Glad to be here. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm glad we get a chance to help establish what most people don't know, is that they may never have heard of one of the most gifted, brilliant musicians ever who just matriculated in Sioux City, Iowa. Tommy Bowling. I'm glad to be here. We'll go ahead and pick up where you left off. Okay, I was waiting for a question. Um, yeah, so I think in the last time, we were talking about that Tommy was, has, had moved to Los Angeles. Well, what had happened before he moved to Los Angeles was that um, he'd become good friends with Joe Walsh in Boulder because uh, when Joe Walsh quit the James Gang, there was a brief moment where the Denver-Boulder area was thought of as going to become the next big cultural mecca. And a number of really gifted musicians like Stephen Stills, Joe Walsh, and some others had moved to the Denver-Boulder area. And Joe was one of them. And Caribou Ranch had just started, which was going to become the most hip, incredible uh, retreat recording studio in the country up in the mountains outside of Boulder. And Joe formed his group, Barnstorm, um, and he needed a bass player. And he called Tommy. You know any bass players? Well, Tommy's best buddy bass player, who was about to be in energy with him, was Kenny Passarelli. And so he said, well, I got Kenny. And so Tommy turned Joe onto Kenny, and they started recording the Barnstorm album. And Rocky Mountain Way is a co-written composition between Joe Walsh and Kenny Passarelli. So, anyway, Tommy Bowen and Energy famously opened for Barnstorm on some local club gigs. Joe paid for threw a birthday party for Karen on her 21st birthday at a fancy uh, restaurant in Boulder. And, and, he, and Joe was famously quoted saying, Tommy can play rings around me. So anyway, he had quit the James Gang, and they had replaced him with Dominic Troiano, uh, who was a very good guitar player, a good songwriter. But Dominic didn't like playing live. So they had done an album after Joe left called Straight Shooter, and it did not get any radio play, and it didn't sell well at all. And as they started playing out, it was apparent Adama didn't really relish playing as a like a rock star on stage. And so Jim Fox got a hold of Joe and was kind of just, you know, shooting the shit, but saying, this isn't really working. Dominic doesn't really relish playing live. And Joe went, I got just the guy for you, Tommy Bowling. And so that's how Tommy got into the James Gang. And as we talked in the last session before, and they wound up doing James Gang Bang and the Miami album. And Tommy got out to, and started 
touring around with the James Gang in their circuit. They were on Don Kirshner's rock concert, and they were also on the Midnight Special, and started. And then, so Tommy got a sense of, okay, but he also, through having that money, was starting to be able to afford to indulge himself a little more with some, some drugs and and he was having people from every direction telling him how great he was. And because he was. And so he kind of then lost his focus of really caring about being in the James game. And he really was overdue for doing Tommy Bowling. I mean, the fact that he would then have to be in some other group to get traction really spoke to that he was stuck in Boulder, stuck with Barry Fayez's manager, and the hotbed of the music industry was Los Angeles at that point, infamous for like the Laurel Canyon scene. People have seen the documentaries about Laurel Canyon. It was just the hotbed, and all the top musicians would move to Southern California and they would then be part of this incredible music community, and they would get signed. And all the, David Geffen was there dreaming up new super groups that members could get plugged into, and it just became clear that Tommy needed to be in Los Angeles because Colorado just didn't have the mojo. But in going there, he still had Barry as his manager, so he moved to Los Angeles and began the process of starting to record his album. And it was time for Tommy to do Tommy. And even though the James Gang, that he was able to do a lot of his music, his songs, and establish himself as a rock-type artist versus a jazz fusion artist, um, it just wasn't what he wanted to do. And he was overdue you know, for doing Tommy. So he goes to L.A., and Barry put together a group of guys, gambling buddies, actually, to help invest in Tommy, to keep him afloat while he was out there. And they started recording the teaser album, getting that, doing demos and starting to put tracks together. So, and then they found a potential label for him, which was actually Matt Weiss's Nemperer Records, and Matt owned Nemperer Artists, and they had been the management company of the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And Matt had actually gotten his start because he was Brian Epstein's lover in 1967 in London. They were both gay men. And Matt, unlike Brian, had great ears. He could actually hear. Brian Epstein was did not really, wasn't a music guy. Matt was. Matt got wind of Tommy and he really wanted him. And he encouraged him, do an album that will be rock and jazz. You go for it. You do it. And so they're working on that. But there's no money coming in at that point. He's not getting royalties from anywhere. And um, and he's in Los Angeles. And, and Barry's providing some you know, money to, to live on. But it was really pressurized because LA everybody he was meeting and running into were all a lot of these famous musicians who were doing pretty well and he was feeling like a step behind meanwhile um, E Purple had hit the peak 
when they did the In Rock album, when it happened with Deep Purple, they had done the three albums in the late 60s. And um, in the song Hush became a big hit, which actually Joe South wrote. Uh, and they, they had a breakthrough hit with it. And, you know, doing pretty well. But they were going, wait a minute, you know. And what really got Deep Purple to say, wait a minute, was that Led Zeppelin broke through. And they took a look at Led Zeppelin and went, hmm, what are the ingredients here? And one of them was to do a louder, guitar-based, harder-type sound. And that, that and Led Zeppelin did more than that, but that component really inspired the members of Deep Purple which, of course, Richie was, Blackmore was the guitar player. And they decided, you know what? I'll be a little bit crassier. Let's copy Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and not that they were going to sound like him, but that they were going to then go to a heavier sound. And that's what the In Rock album was. And all of a sudden, boom, they just blew up giant. And they were off and running and immediately got a lot of traction around being a touring act. And then Richie wound up having a fight with Ian Gillen. They wound up getting, you know, to where they wanted to make a change, and they found David Coverdale, who obviously went on to tremendous success, and they spent Glenn Hughes, who had been in Trapeze. And so they brought both of them in and reformed the band, and that's when they really hit their largest uh, success, doing the infamous California Jam concert where there were 500,000 people there. And by then, the whole booking scene around the world had really developed. And Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones had shown how you could tour all over the world and just make a fortune. The Deep Purple ascended. You know, they did the Machine Head and Smoke on the Water became such a giant hit. And then that's when I believe Ian left, and then they got David and uh, Glenn in there. And so they had just become huge, and all this money's pouring in. Well, Glenn famously was into R&B music and funk music, and Richie was like allergic to that kind of stuff. And so all of a sudden, you know, there's starting to be this friction in the band, and Richie had kind of absorbed the ego place that the guitar player is the guy. And he, and I also just hypothesized myself that he may not have been a full business partner in the group. I don't know. Because with all that money coming in, it seemed a little odd that he would just quit. But he probably had a sense of, if I quit, he'll be in charge of Rainbow. You know, it'll be his band. He won't have four other musicians that are splitting the pie five ways. And he'll be able to cash in and be in charge of his own destiny. So he quit. And Deep Purple Management's like, what are we going to do? We can go out on a world tour in two months and just have huge amounts of money and be just incredible. And so they auditioned a number of they wanted Jeff Beck and Jeff was like I'm not interested 
and um, Kim Simpson, I believe, who'd been in Humble Pie, got auditioned, and they just didn't think that he had enough presence to kind of hold that slot. And so they were sitting there in L.A., and the whole band had moved to Los Angeles, and they're going, okay, well, this isn't, we haven't yet found the bullseye as to how we can then add a new guitar player and really energize and get back out on the road, take advantage of these massive offers that are pouring in before it's too late. You know, we need to hit the ground running here quickly. There was kind of this pressure. And all the musicians realized that they wanted to keep that momentum going. So Coverdale famously had somebody had turned him on to the Billy Cobham Spectrum album and, and he played it for everybody else and that they all went, who the hell is this guitar player? Oh my God. They just were all stunned going, you know, this was way beyond Richie to be blunt. And there's you know, a lot of Deep Purple fans from back then still think Richie is you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And they think that's sacrilege. <laughs> that's what he said, but that's how I feel. And so um, they're like, how do we get a hold of this guy? How do we get a hold of him? And it turns out Tommy was living in L.A. He was there. And he was really nearby. So they were able to connect the dots and uh, get a hold of Tommy and say, come on down. They had rented this pirate this warehouse where they were storing all their touring gear. And it was called Pirate Sound. And um, they invited him to come down. And he came down. And he was like skinny, skin and bones. He hadn't been eating very much. And he was starting to have more of a liquid diet. And he plugged in. And it was just like the Spectrum album. It was just like the James Gang. It was just like when he first came to Denver in 1967 playing Purple Haze for people. It took 30 seconds for them all to go, holy shit, who is Unbelievable. Done. You're in. And every single situation Tommy ran across where he was picked to do this or do that, play with this band, do this situation, it was always the same reaction. So, yeah, you're hired. And um, and so we're going to need to put a record together. It was the summer of 75 where they you know, decided, let's go woodshed in Munich and put a new record together. Well, Tommy, all of a sudden, was in the fast lane. And he had been, you know, he had had a propensity for, you know, drinking and doing drugs. In that era back then, this was thought of as romantic. And he wound up, you know, whatever drove him, to want to escape from whatever people would, would do. You know, it was always romanticized as, as it was hip and cool. And, and uh, But a lot of people were actually running away from something. And um, so um, he started having access to more uh, whatever, drugs, cocaine, alcohol, by being in the deep purple world, because they were huge. And Glenn, at that point, was infamously and had become a major cocaine addict. 
and he and Tommy both, you know, shared that. And all of a sudden, Tommy had a running buddy to then go crazy with. And um, and Ian Pace famously, you know, I still see pictures of him holding a bottle of Jack Daniels. You know, so, and, but back then, it was like everybody was doing whatever. And everybody was doing cocaine. And um, but Tommy had a little bit more of a, a darker streak around really having a taste for that. And all of a sudden, he could have any, you know, it's like I was saying, life in the fast lane, that Eagle song. Everything all the time. That's why they wrote that song, which was the year Tommy died. It totally represented exactly that. that the, everybody was just kind of hurtling out of control. And Glenn was uh, hurtling out of control also. So they went to Munich, and their stories right away were about Tommy disappearing for a day and then showing up with these two amazingly gorgeous women. And Ian Pace has told this story about they came in and, and anybody got any drugs? Anybody got, oh, here's a bottle of pills. And then he just poured out a bunch of pills and swallowed them all. And it turns out that they were downers. And it, they were like shocked. Oh, my God. And, yeah, he just passed out. And then when he came to a day later, came into the studio and ready to go. And he wrote most all the music for that album. And he had some songs he brought with him, but then a lot of them were kind of written on the spot. And Coverdale would do the lyrics for them. And then Tommy had the song Getting Tighter that he had actually written earlier, a number of years earlier. Because Tommy... You know, he's known for his jazz fusion, he's known for his rock, but he also was way into funk and R&D, and he had been steeped in black music from the early age. And so Getting Tidal was a real funk song, and then Glenn Hughes put the lyrics to it. But in doing the album, Glenn famously was so strung out on cocaine that he went over the edge. And they had to ship him back to England to, to go to the hospital to, to dry out. And they were like, what the hell are we going to do? And they were, and that's when they did the song Dealer, and Tommy sings part of Dealer. And then they did Coming Home, which was the lead track for the record. And in those days, if somebody wound up not being able to be there, the band was under pressure to keep going. So... They do this song Coming Home, which was kind of like the introduction to this new Deep Purple. And Tommy and Coverdale wrote it. It's a great song. It's the first song on the album. And Tommy played bass on it because Glenn was not there. He's, you know, deed. Um, so anyway, they, you know, they wrapped up doing the album. And, and going back and listening to it now, song for song, you know, there's a lot of people who think, except for the old school, died in the world, Richie fanatic fans, most people who had listened to it with an objective ear, and a lot of people who were Richie fans over the decades, now go, wow, that may be their best album ever, in terms of how fresh it was, in terms of the energy of it, 
terms of what Tommy brought to the table. And the band at that point was like, okay, we're ready to go because they could get out on the road and just do some great shows. So in November, they all flew to Hawaii where they were going to do the very first shows ever. And the month before, Teaser came out. And so once he got into Deep Purple, he was pretty much about finished with Teaser. And he had gotten the deals in Emperor Records. But he now was going to be paying all this cash to be in the band, or Barry was going to get, get the money. And so he had to put doing, having his own band, doing promotion for Teaser on the back burner because there was all this excitement about Tommy's going to get paid a bunch of money now to be in Deep Purple. And so in the retrospect of it all, it really was stupid that that happened that way because the whole point was that Tommy was finally going to do his first solo album, which the Teaser album is just one of the most brilliant albums from a rock perspective of the 1970s. And that that album wound up coming out and he couldn't tour behind it. He couldn't tour behind it. He couldn't do promo for it. He was now doing Deep Purple who already could make all this money touring. So that was just a mess, in my opinion. Um, and it was really a disservice to Tommy as the brilliant talent that he was. But it was an expedient payday that this was going to be so much money that, you know, can't not do that. So off to Honolulu they went. And Tommy, who at this point had started, uh, he and Karen were not always together anymore. But Tommy, when this came along, wanted Karen to go with him. And so they all flew to Honolulu. Tommy had never been in Hawaii. Neither had Karen. And they did the first shows there and then went off. And they toured from uh, December to March. They did the, the Far East. They did um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, in Japan, and they famously did a show in Jakarta, Indonesia, where they wound up getting caught up in this bizarre shakedown by the Indonesian government, where they staged a fake situation where some Indonesian security agents masquerading as just people pushed one of Deep Tommy's, I think it was his road, no, somebody else's roadie down the elevator shaft, and the guy died. And they then came in and arrested Glenn Hughes. And they were basically going to hold the band for ransom. And the price for them to get through this was that they had to stage a second show, big show, outdoor show, where the government would get all the money. They basically forced them at gunpoint. And to do this, this whole banana republic, the Indonesian government totally shook them down. And, and that occurred there in Jakarta, and it's an infamous episode, and it was just like, what the hell is going on? It was craziness. Well, so then from there they went, they came back to the States, they did some shows here, and they went to England, and throughout this whole period, Tommy, again, is getting more and more access to more and more drugs and alcohol. He and Glenn are, you know, running wild. 
And some of his shows started having an inconsistent quality to them, um, which was kind of the beginning of a problem where he was, he would binge out. Because it wasn't like he was doing the same amount of drugs every day, out of control, kind of stupor. But he would binge out, and so his performances became inconsistent. And when they got to England, uh, that's where they had the famous show in Liverpool, which wound up being their, I think their last show. The people were screaming, where's Richie, where's Richie? And, and Tommy was just like, you know, this was not fitting the narrative. It was based on how brilliant he was. And he had given up promoting his solo album and yeah, so what happened was Deep Purple would let him do one or two songs. They agreed that he would do one or two songs per night, or they would be songs from the teaser album. And he would promote himself to where here's 20, 30, 40,000 people where they would then be introduced to Tommy Bull, and he's now going to sing a song for you. And um, so he used it as a platform to, to, to promote himself. And it worked, you know, that's part of it happened he did become much better known but there were things that were cross currents going on um, in terms of his management situation um, not being able to really get his own band going and the fact that he was now becoming more dependent i.e. developing an addiction to the drugs and, and then heroin and opioids had become part of the mix on more of a common basis. And that he was now getting to where it was becoming a burden for him on a personal level. And um, so March came and they ended the tour and everything just kind of imploded to where there was all this acrimony and that Deep Purple is now done. And all the members felt, okay, well, Tommy's going to go his solo career. And so everybody felt, well, okay, we're on top of the world. We're giant. We'll all sign off on the idea that Deep Purple is done. And we'll all go um, do our own solo projects. And that brings us to the next chapter. <laughs> which would be the beginning of the very first Tommy Boland band. All right, well, let's cut it off there because we've only got about a minute left anyway. So Yeah, so, and then so April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. Nine months is the last chapter where Tommy finally has his own band. And by the end of that year, an amazing album gets done finally gets a chance to do his music in front of people and by the end of the year he's starting to get radio play crowds are starting to love it and then he passes well you've been we've been talking to michael drum about uh the great tom tommy bowen and uh if you've been listening uh all through these six episodes your mind may have post-toasted somewhere along the line but don't worry about it episode six is coming right up